Uh, good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, as Ben shared, my name is Danny, and I serve as the middle school pastor here. Uh, today, we are going to be continuing our series in the book of Colossians. I'll be wrapping up the first chapter. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, and this morning, as we work through the series, it's kind of helpful for us to take a look back at where we've been. So in the first week, uh, we talked through the fruit of the gospel. And Britt shared with us how the gospel changes our perspectives and our lives when we interact and encounter with it. And then last week, Britt shared about the way that Paul prays for the church of Colossae, but also our church as well, that they continually and that we continually develop the habits that will help us live the Christian life. And this week, as we finish off this chapter, uh, we are going to see that Paul shifts a little bit to specifically highlight the divinity and the supremacy of Christ. So just after wrapping up his Thanksgiving, just after talking and praying for the church, he starts talking in a poem, uh, in a hymn really, about how marvelous Jesus is. And for the last few weeks, we have been standing together and reading scripture out loud. Uh, so will you join me in standing and reading this passage together? Let's all stand. Uh, it says this, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Thank you. You can be seated. So as you can probably tell, just by the length of this passage, there is quite a bit for us to unpack. And before we get to that, again, it's helpful for us to look at where we are coming from. So we don't know a whole lot about the specifics of the situation happening here at this church in Colossae. But one of the things that we do know is that Paul was writing to combat some heresy or, or false doctrines that were developing within this church. And so in our first week of our series, Britt talked about two of those ideologies, Gnosticism and legalism, both of which were present in this region at this time. And so when we use this situation, this backdrop, uh, it helps serve as a filter for us to understand why Paul is writing this letter. And as we do that, it becomes increasingly clear that Paul's point in writing this hymn is to remind the early Christians that Christ is supreme. Christ is supreme. When Paul wrote this letter, the Gnostic movement was actually still in its early stages of development. 
It wasn't until several decades later that it would become this full-fledged belief system that was just infiltrating the churches. Uh, at this point, it was just a little seed of what would eventually happen. But early on, Paul could recognize that there were some certain things about this system, about this belief, that were really dangerous for the church. And so Paul wrote this letter as a means of debunking and deconstructing the Gnostic perspective. And one of the things that you have to understand about Gnosticism is that it required uh, an emphasis on this Greek concept called dualism. And in its most simple forms, dualism uh, just means that things that are physical, things that are tangible, things that you can feel and touch and taste, those things are inherently broken. There's something about them that makes them less than. They're, they're dirty, they're gross, they're, they're evil. But on the other hand, there are all of these spiritual concepts, and those things are good. Spiritual concepts are the things worth pursuing. Those are superior. And so the Gnostics would place an emphasis on chasing that, chasing anything that was spiritual, pushing aside the material concepts and chasing all things spiritual. And for the Gnostics, one of these most important things that they would chase was knowledge. They believed that knowledge was this idea, this thing that, that would save them. It would bring about salvation for them. Gnostics believed that God would reveal uh, bits of information to people over time, just bits of special divine knowledge. And this knowledge, this, this revealing of it, was all that was necessary for faith. If you receive this divine knowledge from God, you would be saved. That's all it took. Just wait for God to reveal this knowledge. And for them, the human body then, wasn't anything great. The human body, they actually considered to be a prison. It was a prison, and inside of you is this divine spark that's just fighting to get out. But eventually, this, this gnosis, this divine revealed knowledge, would free your divine spark from its human body prison, and you would eventually join God in a divine state. So if you were to ask a Gnostic about the most important aspect of their faith, the most important aspect of their belief system, they would immediately put knowledge. They'd say knowledge is at the top. Knowledge is the most important thing. Knowledge is superior to all things. This divine revelation, that is what I want to worship. I want to worship knowledge. I want to worship this thing that is going to bring me salvation. But then Paul looks at the system and thinks, that is, that is backwards. That is all wrong. He says, knowledge, knowledge is important. He says, seeking knowledge about God specifically is super important. But at the top of the hierarchy, it's not knowledge. At the top of the hierarchy, it is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the most important thing. Christ reigns supreme in that manner, not knowledge. And so in Paul's eyes, any knowledge that is revealed to us, anything that we discover on our own or discover as we're reading, that is simply something that directs us back to Jesus, who directs us back to God. Knowledge itself doesn't outweigh or, or supersede or undercut the life and the ministry and the person of Jesus. And to emphasize this point, Paul describes Christ as the firstborn over all creation. And, and the implications of this are something that we, we kind of lose when we transition from reading the scriptures uh, of an ancient Near Eastern culture into our modern culture of 2020. Uh, what we see here in the cultures at that time, the firstborn son was the second most important figure in a family. After the father, the firstborn son was the one who would establish the father's name, who would go out in the world, who, who would take over for the family. 
The firstborn son would receive the largest share of the inheritance. And in some cultures, the firstborn son was the only person the father would need to consult with about a big decision. He wouldn't have to bring in the wife or the whole family and have like a big sit-down family meeting. No, he would just pull the son aside because it was the son's legacy as well. Whatever decisions the father made affected the son and his future legacy. And so Paul is not only recognizing that the one to whom any divine knowledge points is Jesus, but Paul is also saying that Jesus' established role as God's firstborn son, as God's own son, that is the thing that makes him superior. That is the thing that puts him at the top of the hierarchy. Because according to Paul, the Christian life is a life lived with Jesus at the highest seat. Jesus has to be number one. Later on, just after the section of Scripture we read, Paul goes on to say, it is him who we proclaim. It is Jesus that we proclaim. It is Jesus that we go out and talk about. It isn't sacred, special knowledge. It isn't a book study on how to learn more things. No, no, it is Jesus. Jesus is the one at the highest place in God's family. He has the best seat at the table. He alone is worthy of proclamation. And that takes us to our second point which is that Jesus Christ is the fullness of God. Jesus is the fullness of God. <clears throat> Within this dualistic system, because of the way that it separates physical versus spiritual, and because physical things are always broken and dirty and spiritual things are always things that hold precedent, there comes a point where you now have to reconcile the person of Jesus. The guy who walked around on earth. The guy who was, who was thought and sometimes claimed to be the son of God. How do you reconcile those? How would God ever take the form of a person? And in the minds of the most ardent Gnostics, the hardest standers, the, the people who were like, I am not backing down, they would look at Jesus and say, there is no way that man is the son of God. There is no way that man is the savior of the world because he has a body. He has a physical being. And having a physical being means that there are limitations. God has no limitations. His body lowered his superiority. And so they would worship knowledge. Because knowledge doesn't have a body. Knowledge doesn't have a shape. It doesn't have limitations. Knowledge is eternal. Knowledge is forever. But on top of this, not only was Jesus' body a limitation, but Gnostics actually believed that God could not be known. In order for God to be God, you could not know anything about God, which makes no sense to me. God, in their minds, transcends everything. God is so high above the human mind that God just can't be observed. God can't be known. You can't study God. God is so far away, so other. There is no hope for humans in their current physical state to ever have a relationship with God. You cannot observe God. You cannot know anything about God at all. And they did this because they had to keep God separate. God had to be separate from the material world. So God set things in motion and kind of just dipped out and disappeared. But Paul takes this argument. He takes their perspective, this, this picture of this transcendent being, this thing being so far away, and he says to the church in Colossae that Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus is the fullest picture of God. You, see, you, you say you can't know anything about God. Well, we can. We can absolutely know what God is like. 
We can absolutely witness God do things. We can absolutely observe God. We know how he acts. We know how God treats people. And we know these things because God, the divine one, the transcendent being, has chosen to take up residence in a human body. So when the Gnostics say it doesn't make sense for God to take on a human body, Paul says, yeah, that's the point. That is the point of Jesus. It doesn't make sense, but we can see it. We can witness it. The creator of all things, the one with all of the knowledge in the universe, does not look down on humanity with scorn. He doesn't look at humanity and say, I'm going to be elsewhere from you. I don't want to be around you. I'm just going to leave you to your own devices. But instead, the one who was over all and above all, who transcends all things, said, I'm going to take the form of a human. And I'm going to show that it is fully possible to experience God. And so in the person of Jesus, the divine, the spiritual, and the human are fused together. The actions of Jesus, the choices that he made, the way that he led his followers, the way that he moved in and out of social and cultural boundaries, those are all depictions of what God is like. Those are all pictures of the way that God works with and interacts in the world. And so in Jesus, we can witness We can experience, we can observe God. And not only can we do those things, but because God came down to earth in the form of Jesus, a human, we can have a relationship with God. Through Jesus, through the incarnation, a door is open for us to respond to a relationship with our creator. And so for Paul, the humanity of Jesus is not a fatal flaw like it would be for the Gnostics. In fact, in the mind of Paul, the humanity of Jesus is probably one of the most important traits of him because it is showing God says, I want a relationship. I want more than just you following rules. I want more than just you saying some prayers because you have to. I want a relationship. I want it to go further. God's desire to meet his people where they are is shown in the person of Jesus. And so God's presence on earth in the form of Jesus, takes us to our next point, which is by choosing to dwell amongst his people, we are shown that Christ is the agent of change. It's not wisdom or law. It is Christ. (laughs) In the Hebrew scriptures, it was common to view wisdom as this personification of some characteristic or attribute about God. It was also common to view it as as a a personification of the, the law of God. So this wisdom, then, was often thought to have existed beyond human constraints of time. In Proverbs 8, it's one of the most common passages to read when you want to look for an example of what this looks like. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is described as existing before the beginning of the earth, uh, and before really God has done anything, is, is God and wisdom in Proverbs 8. But then Paul takes many of these concepts, this familiarity of wisdom as a person, wisdom was before time, wisdom was with God at the beginning of creation. And he says, all of these things you think about wisdom are Jesus. All of these things that you're directing towards wisdom also apply to Jesus. And so he writes, Jesus is pre-existent. Jesus is divine. Jesus is the true personification of God's character. Jesus is the personification of the law. Jesus is the realization, the fullness, the real personification of all of these concepts of wisdom from the Old Testament. 
And by pulling these pieces of his own culture and his own history in from the Old Testament, he is showing his leaders, his readers, that Jesus is the one who changes things. Jesus is the one who is capable of changing our lives. The Gnostics would say, like, no, no, it's knowledge. It's knowledge. It's always knowledge. He says, no, no, no. The Christian life isn't about that. It's not about an endless pursuit of knowledge, of limitless knowledge. It's about following Jesus. In fact, in Paul's eyes, he goes on to write that, that knowledge, this endless pursuit of it, can actually hinder us. It, it can blind us to our real situation. Uh, and as I was preparing this, I, I was actually watching a show that I think really expresses this well. It's a show, it just ended, it's on NBC, it's called The Good Place. Uh, and in The Good Place, is a story about these four people who die and they end up in The Good Place, which is heaven. Uh, but one of these people, his name is Chidi Anagonye. And Chidi is a moral philosopher. And as a moral philosopher and a professor of philosophy, he has dedicated his life to studying everything. He wants to know what every philosopher has ever thought about life, has ever thought about how to respond in a particular situation. He wants to know all of it. He wants to pursue all of that knowledge. So that in any situation, he could say, well, if I were a utilitarian, I would do this. And if I were a virtue ethicist, I would do this. And if I were any of the other types of philosophy, I would do this. He wants to know it all. But what you find out is that Chidi's plan to know it all, to help him make decisions, goes so badly. In fact, he knows so much that he can't make a decision. He can't live his life the way that he'd want. He's standing at a muffin counter, and they're like, what, do you, what kind of muffin do you want? And he goes, well, I don't know. I, I think I want blueberries, but blueberries are bad for the environment. Or I think I want this, this honey oat infused thing, but we're missing bees and bees are dying. So I don't think I want that. And they're like, okay, it's been an hour. Just pick one. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know. And he leaves. That is the life. Knowledge, his pursuit of knowledge has restricted his ability. It has blinded him. It has paralyzed him. But in the same way, Paul is saying, you can't chase wisdom and you can't chase this religious following of the law as if following rules is going to ever save you or change you. I consider myself to be a pretty good driver. I'm not great. I make mistakes. Sometimes I change lanes without looking. I'm human. Forgive me. But I think that I'm like, I'm pretty good when it comes to the following laws. And so when I'm driving in my car, uh, I do my best to turn my signal on occasionally when I remember it. Uh, I do my best to not listen to music too loudly so that I can hear like fire trucks and ambulances and police cars so I can pull over like a good human and uh, let them pass me. I, I try my best to follow the laws. But if I were to pursue that to no end and say, I'm going to do this religiously because if I follow all the driving laws, I'm going to be a good person. I would very quickly find myself uh, doing that thing that we all do where we get super frustrated whenever somebody cuts us off. I'd be driving and I'd think, I'm following this laws, I'm doing right, these are going to change me, and then that one person in the white Subaru is going to cut me off, and I'm going to be like, ah, and I'm going to punch my steering wheel, which is not a real example. I made that one up in my head. I've never done that before in my life. Because emphasizing the restrictive, religious following of laws can't change you. Following a law to a T can't change you. Pursuing knowledge cannot change you. It is only the fusion of those two ideas in the person of Jesus, that could ever change you. Following Jesus will change you forever. So where does that take us? Where do we go from here? How do we apply what we're reading? Well, the first thing that we should know is that Paul reminds us that fullness cannot be found apart from Christ. 
As much as we might want to place our deliverance in other things, our hopes in other concepts, in other people, our hope for deliverance will only ever be found in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the only one who could take on the fullness of God and point the rest of the world in the right direction. This is, this is what Britt talked about in week one. And it's important that we reiterate it. Because in Paul, uh, Paul in verse 23, he says that reconciliation is coming our way if, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And the inclusion of this little sentence here means that in this church, at this time, there were people who were happily trading away their hope for deliverance. They're saying, I don't want to do this alone. I don't want to do just this Jesus thing. I need to find hope elsewhere. I need to find fullness elsewhere. They got caught up in Gnosticism and legalism. And so they're shifting their hope from Jesus to something else trying to separate this search of f- from fullness from the life of Christ. And if they were anything like us, which I imagine they were because they're human, they were probably trying to shift for their search of fullness from Jesus to Jesus and my job. Well, if I just get that promotion, if I, if I just work harder, if, if I stay later and I get all my work done, my bosses will recognize that I'm doing a great job and I'll get that promotion, which means that I can spend more time with my family, which means that I can go on vacation, which means I can do all these things. Or maybe they were saying, it's not, it's not just Jesus for me, but it's going to be Jesus and, and the economy. I'm, I'm going to pray that things get better. And once the economy is good, then my life will be good and I'll have fulfillment. Or maybe it's Jesus and political leaders. Well, if the right person is in power, if the right person has control, if the right person does this, it'll all trickle down and everything's going to be good. I'll find fulfillment in that. Or maybe it's Jesus and my education. If I get that degree, if I have 16 letters after my last name, then I'll be fulfilled. Or maybe it's Jesus and relationships. If I find somebody that wants to date me, if I can get remarried, If I can make the next relationship work, then I will be fulfilled. There are people trying to take the life of Jesus only and tack on all of these other things as if it were going to work, as if it were going to save them. They're trying to measure up in just a new way, trying to excel in a new way, trying to just get promoted to do more, to do more, to do more, to satisfy their need, to satisfy that search for fulfillment. But Paul says, that's not going to work. And if that's you, if that's where you've put your life, if that's where you've put your hope and placed your hope, just come back. Just turn around, turn your heart back to God, lay it down and return to the life of Jesus only. Because it's the only way we will ever, ever find fullness. The second thing that that we catch from this passage is is it reminds us that our circumstances are not a threat. My circumstances are not a threat. And Paul is making a super bold claim here, and it's not meant to belittle or diminish the things that you're currently feeling, the weights that you are currently carrying. The source of Paul's argument is that all things, all things find their source in Jesus Christ. All things have been made by and through and in the person of Jesus. There is not one thing beyond the boundary, beyond the jurisdiction of Jesus Christ. 
all things are held together in his hands. And so I believe that what Paul is saying here is when you place your hope and your faith and your trust and your life in the hands of Jesus, the threat of those circumstances fades away. This doesn't mean that uh, they become less real. This doesn't mean that they become less painful for you. It doesn't mean that they disappear entirely. No, no, no. You still have to work through them. You still have to live with them. You still have to wrestle with them. You still have to figure out how to move on. But the threat of, can I handle this? Will this break me? Will I ever come out on the other side? How will I survive? Those threats will taper quickly. And a real example of the, uh, this comes from my son, uh, Theo. It's his second birthday today. Uh, and, and one of his favorite movies of all time is Toy Story 3. He's got like seven favorite movies right now, but Toy Story 3 is like at least top three. Uh, and in Toy Story 3, uh, if you've never seen it, I'm going to spoil it for you because it's been out for 10 years. Uh, so you deserve it. Um, in Toy Story 3, the plot line is, is Woody and Buzz and the gang. Uh, Andy's grown up. He's going to college. And so they get themselves sent off to daycare. And they have to go to this daycare, and they realize that this daycare, things are not what they seem. It's terrible because it's daycare. Uh, and so they decide, we are going to escape. We're going to break out of this joint. We're going to go somewhere else. But in order for them to break out of this place, uh, Woody and Slinky Dog have to wrestle with uh, a mechanical monkey that has crazy eyes and symbols, and he's just like insane. And anytime this scene comes on, regardless of where my wife Nicole and I are in the house, Theo will come sprinting to us. We'll be like doing dishes, and he'll just like, ah! We'll be making dinner, and the stove's hot, and he's just like, ah! Like we'll be sitting right next to him, and he'll just crawl over. And every time, if we're standing up, he'll walk up to us, and he'll just wrap his arm around our leg. Or if we're sitting on the couch, he'll crawl over to us on the couch, and he'll just place his hand on our thigh. And what's remarkable about this is that he doesn't say, like, off, turn it off, I'm done. He doesn't go all done. He doesn't even say please. He just sits there with his hand on our leg. Because he knows in his mind, even though he's only two, he knows my parents have the power. My, my parents, they know more than I do. My parents, they get it. They have the power to, to pause it to turn off the show, to take me upstairs, to like cuddle me and say it's going to be okay. They, they have the power to overcome my circumstances. But he doesn't ask for any of that stuff. He, he says, I'm going to put my hand here. And then he turns and regardless of where he is, he just watches the TV. He looks at the thing that is terrifying him and he faces it. He says, I'm not, I'm not going to let this stop me. This is my favorite show. This is my favorite movie. I'm going to watch it. So he rests his hand on our thigh and he says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to look through my circumstance because I know my parents have overcome. It's the same thing with God. When we find ourselves in situations where it's hard, where it's scary, where we don't know where we're going, we can turn back to Jesus and just put a hand on his leg. Say, I don't know what's going on, but, but I trust you. I don't know what's going on, but I, I know that you can overcome because you told us so yourself in John 16, and you said, you're going to have some problems. Life is going to be hard, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Which takes us to our third and final point for this morning. Paul emphasizes here that Christ's act of reconciliation should be present in the church. 
In the section just after this, we didn't read it this morning, but you can go home and read it or when you get in your car or whatever. Uh, in verses 24 through 29, Paul wraps up this chapter by describing how his desire to live like Jesus, his desire to pursue Jesus has humbled him. He'll describe the way that his desire to preach the gospel has broken him. How growing to fill the footprints that Jesus has left for him to follow has stretched him. How it's challenged him. How it's frustrated him. He'll talk about the ways that that he has suffered. But how those sufferings occur on behalf of the church. And in fact, Paul takes great pride in his sufferings. Because he knows that these acts of humility, these acts of love, these acts of repeatedly pouring himself out to follow those footprints of Jesus is all worth it. Because when Paul looks at Jesus, he sees a man who has emptied himself. We already talked about what it looks like to be the firstborn son, how the firstborn son has all the power, the firstborn son sits at the head of the table, the firstborn son has the largest share of the inheritance, is in control, has all of the authority. And Jesus, as the son of God, as the firstborn son, was recipient of all of those things, standing at the head of creation, the filter through which everything on earth has been made. He's at the top of the chain, the right hand of God, and he emptied himself. He gave it up. He said, I'm number two, but I'm going to give it up. I'm going to lay it down. He entered into the world, not as a king, not as a billionaire, Silicon Valley startup investor, not as a politician, as an infant. He flipped our perspectives on what it looks like to utilize and to wield power and through his life and death set humanity on a course towards reconciliation with God. And not only did Jesus lay those things down, but he said, this isn't just for me. This is mine, but it's not just for me. I I want you to be a part of it. And he started to open it up to share those things with other people. He opened up the gates and just said, you too can be an heir. You too can be a child of God. You too can have a share of my inheritance. Even you, regardless of how broken you've convinced yourself you are, even you are welcomed to the table. Which means that the life of reconciliation isn't just about somewhere else. It's not just about going somewhere else or or living somewhere else or, or heaven and the good place. It's about now. And Paul sees it. He looks at Jesus as an example and says, this is it. This is the life I want to live. This is the reconciliation I want to be a part of. It's not just about some other place. I want to get out there. I want to get after it. And so Paul jumps out, he's on the road, he's traveling across the world, he's telling everybody he can about Jesus, he's living out the gospel, he's preaching to every creature under heaven, he wants to love in the same way, in a way that's as wide as the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross, he wants to follow God so closely. And when you look at Jesus like this, when you view Christ in this way, when you look at how he gave up his power, He gave up his influence. He gave up his possessions. And then he shared his inheritance. When you look at how he's served and loved and cherished and invited people in, you cannot help but become inspired yourself. You cannot help but look at Jesus and think, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of this work of reconciliation. I want to follow in the same footsteps that Paul followed because he's following Jesus and I want to get there. When you look at Jesus like this, the one who just hands it over, who who just lowers himself and says, I want you to be a part of this. 
You cannot help but want to talk about it, to share about it, to model it in your schools and in your workplaces and on the sidelines of your kids' sports games. You cannot help but want to join in and participate in the kingdom, to kick open the gates and say, come in, just come in. Come experience this thing that has changed my life. And Paul knows it because it's changed his life. He was a persecutor of the church. He was actively killing Christians. He was on the road to find some more. And he had an encounter with Jesus and everything changed. He died to himself and brought new life and everything is different now. So he wants to join in. And so he's okay with suffering because he knows that every step he takes is another step closer to the day that he sees Jesus. Every day he spends in chains is another day closer to when he will be free in God. Every, every pain, every punishment, every heartache, it is all just a manifestation of the refining fire that is changing him to become more like Jesus. And Paul's saying, you can be a part of this too. The Christian life is about stepping in about joining in with God and saying, I'm going to participate in the work. I'm not going to wait till some other time. I'm going to join in now. I'm going to do the uncomfortable thing. I'm going to do the hard thing. I'm going to look at my circumstances. I'm going to put my hand on your leg. I'm going to say, I trust you. I trust where you're leading me. And it's going to look a lot different for all of you. It's going to look different for every single person. Maybe you put your hand on the thigh of Jesus. You say, I'm going to reconcile with that family member. I'm going to share the love of Jesus with that person that sits in the cubicle across from me. I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my hand on your thigh and I'm going to trust that, that when you ask me to lead students in ministry to show them how they can be reconciled to each other and to their families, that you're going to take me somewhere. It's saying, I'm going to participate. And I don't know what the road looks like. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where this is going to lead me, but I'm going to step in with you because I want to be a part of the process. I want to be a part of my own sanctification. So Paul says, don't look at your pain as something to avoid. Don't look at your circumstances, however difficult they are, as something to avoid. But join in. Ask God for more. Ask God to do a great work in you the way he did in Paul, the way he does through people who interact with and encounter Jesus. It is him who we proclaim. It is Jesus that we proclaim, the one who brings us fullness the one who has overcome any circumstance, the one who has shown us that true reconciliation is something that we can partake in. It is him who we proclaim, striving with all the energy that he powerfully works within each and every single one of us. Let's pray.